You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter and creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. I hope everyone at home is enjoying what's left of the summer here. I know that kids are going back to school soon if they haven't already, and people are squeezing in their last-minute vacations and getting every bit of relaxation in that they can. Well, we have a great show for you today. Uh, this Thursday, August 21st, is a great Marian feast day, especially for those of us who are Irish. And, of course, with the last name of O'Neill, you can't mistake that one for me. Our Lady of Knock uh, happened in an apparition event in August 21st, 1879, in County Mayo, Ireland. And it's a famous silent apparition that happened in the pouring rain, and it was seen by 15 witnesses in a range of ages. Now, it was fully investigated and approved by the Catholic Church. And in fact, in 1979, Pope John Paul II visited the shrine for the 100th anniversary of those apparitions. At that event, over 450,000 people came to knock on that day. On this occasion, he presented a golden rose, which is a seldom-bestowed token of papal honor and recognition. So this is really considered one of the great apparitions in church history. It is a real mystery, however. There are, were no messages given at this apparition, which is very different from most apparitions. And it was witnessed by a crowd, not a single visionary or a couple of visionaries. So it's very unique and difficult to decipher what it all means. But it's an event that has had a great meaning to the Irish people. And we'll be joined today by Dr. Eugene Hines. He's a professor at Kettering University and author of the book Knock, the, Vir the Virgin Mary's Apparition in 19th Century Ireland. Again, you're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. And today we are talking about Our Lady of Knock. And of course, in just a bit, we'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question. So get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, August 19th, in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. This week in Miracle News, there was a report of a Virgin Mary statue in St. Joseph's Church in Iraq that started crying uh, tears of water, and then those tears turned into blood. Now, this uh, report is very uh, spotty. We don't have a lot of details on it, and I've only seen a couple of reports. Obviously, there's a, a, a great amount of suffering going on in Iraq, and we need to pray for all the people there, the Christians who are being persecuted. And uh, this statue could be a, a sign, as oftentimes these statues are, of a great tragedy going on 
and the sadness of Our Lady at them. And the pictures that have been going around the Internet have been going on Twitter since August 8th. And that's the day when it was believed that the Virgin Mary statue first started shedding tears in Iraq. And according to reports gathered uh, by Media Post, uh, the Virgin Mary statue in St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Iraq started crying. And then the tears turned into blood. So that's uh, an interesting uh, story that we have there. Another story that was this week was that the National Catholic Reporter and the Christian Post, amongst others, were reporting, unfortunately, of another satanic mass being celebrated. Um, Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon has condemned an upcoming satanic mass in Oklahoma City in September as a, quote, disgusting mockery of the Catholic faith. And she joins thousands of Christians and the city's Roman Catholic Archbishop who have voiced their deep concern over this scheduled event. Of course, we just had that black mass attempted at Harvard University as well. So this is unfortunate that this is becoming a little bit of a trend here. Uh, over 37,000 people so far have signed the petition against this satanic black mass, and it's planned in Oklahoma City. And like I said, the archbishop has spoken out against it. Uh, it's scheduled for September 21st. So keep that in your prayers that that is uh, canceled. And that's the miracle news we have for this week. To keep up to date with the latest in miracle news, please visit miraclehunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, Updates on my television series, Miracle Hunters, now in development, and my book, Hunting for a Miracle, due out in fall 2014. Any upcoming speaking engagements and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. Now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week I'll be asking you a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week, we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. Now, it's the same piece of artwork we've been giving away in past weeks. It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. You can check it out. Go to MiracleHunter.com, and it's posted on the homepage. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia. So for, for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit CatholicPubTrivia.com. Apologize for the connection issues today, but we're back online, and we had a Catholic Pub trivia question for you. Here's the question. In the apparition of Our Lady of Knock, the Virgin Mary appeared with St. Joseph and St. John and Our Lord. What form did Our Lord take in this apparition? So again, the question about Our Lady of Knock is, in the apparition of Our Lady of Knock, the Virgin Mary appeared with St. Joseph and St. John and Our Lord. What form did our Lord take in this apparition? And now we will turn to our mailbag or email inbox, as it were, to read the question of the week. Each week we select one question from a caller and read it on the air. 
question is, Dear Miracle Hunter, I was looking for information on an apparition in Hormigueros, Puerto Rico, which happened at the end of the 16th century, I think. What do we know about this apparition? Thank you, Judith. Well, dear Judith, uh, thanks for that question. Unfortunately, very little is known about the apparition at Hormigueros, Puerto Rico, but it was claimed to occur in the year 1590. And the story goes that a farmer was threatened by a bull on a hill, and it started charging him, so he prayed to the Virgin Mary for help. And she appeared with the child Jesus in her arms, and the bull knelt instead of attacking. So that's the story of that apparition. And a minor basilica of Our Lady has been built on this site to honor this legendary apparition. So thank you, Judith, for your question. And if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, please write to questions at miraclehunter.com, and we'll be selecting one question per week to be read on the air. For those just joining the program, this is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. For more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. And now it's time for our segment, 365 Days with Mary. Each week, we'll be doing this segment, and for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, there's a Marian title, a feast, or a commemoration of an apparition or other miraculous event that is celebrated. It never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her throughout the year. Now, this project, 365 Days with Mary, compiles all the dates with their feasts into one resource. Each entry features images, a description, and history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines associated with them, including visitor information and links for those wishing to see these places. The project's available in the form of a daily engagement calendar, a daily planner, but it's also online at 365dayswithmary.com. They're on Facebook and Twitter, where if you like them, you'll automatically receive information about each feast day and learn more about how our Blessed Mother is honored around the world. So be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and visit the website, 365dayswithmary.com, to see the project. The print version in the form of a daily engagement calendar makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Today's feast is the Madonna de la Vasa, which is Our Lady of the Lower. It's from Rubiana Torino, Piedmont, in Italy. And the story goes like this. On the dividing ridge between the towns of Valdela Torre and Rubiana, in the province of Turin, lies a shrine dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, Our Lady of the Lower. On August 18th in 1713, when a certain Lorenzo Nicol broke his leg, in an area called the Lower, he turned to Mary and he vowed to build a monument there if he were to be healed and rescued. I guess he was in tough straits there. He was immediately healed by divine intervention. Nicole returned to the country and he forgot his promise. On August 20th of the following year, working in the same place, he was hit with the exact same situation. His leg broke again. But he repented of his past behavior of promising and forgetting to build a shrine. And again, he prayed to the Virgin Mary, who once again came to his aid. He built a monument which led to a sanctuary, and in it he placed a statue which is still venerated there. So that was today's feast. Madonna de la Vasa, Our Lady of the Lower, from Rubiana, Torino, Piedmont, in Italy. 
Be sure to visit the Project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and online at 365dayswithmary.com to find out more about this devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions celebrated around the world. This is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. You can call in with your questions at 866-333-MARY. For more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. And today's show, we are focusing on the great Marian apparition of Ireland, Our Lady of Knock. And our first guest today is Dr. Eugene Hines. He's a professor of sociology at Kettering University and author of Knock, the Virgin Mary's Apparition in 19th Century Ireland. We welcome to the program today, Dr. Eugene Hines. Hello. Hello, Dr. Hines. Thank you for joining us on the show today. You're welcome. So Dr. Hines, I, I think um, the first bit is many people know about uh, the story of Our, Our Lady of Knock, but perhaps you can give us a little background on the history that people celebrate uh, this Thursday, August 21st. Okay. Um, the um, apparition, as reported, uh, was not publicized for uh, several months in the papers, and by the time it was reported in 1880, uh, it had been investigated by several uh, a panel of three or more priests, and whatever they concluded uh, privately or reported to the uh, uh, bishop there is not available, but versions of their report and witness testimony were published in two separate sources uh, in um, January of 1880, and this is the information we have. Okay. And what did what what was the what did the reports say? What what did people claim to see that day? Okay, uh, approximately uh, 14 people at. Uh, the outside of a gable at the local parish church in this little rural village in Mayo in Western Ireland claimed to see an apparition of three figures. And the central one was the Virgin Mary, and she was flanked by two other figures, one uh, they identified as St. Joseph and the other one. They identified initially as a bishop, but eventually that came to be identified as St. John the Baptist, St. John the Evangelist. And they all, some of the witnesses claimed also to see an altar with a lamb and a cross. But uh, most of the uh, witnesses did not see all three of those, uh, more than half of the witnesses saw one or uh, two of them, but all three reported the um, three figures, the Virgin Mary and the um, St. Joseph. So, so there are some differences in the accounts of the various witnesses of what they saw. Yes. And uh, how, how did people come together in this location? Why, why was it that... Uh, that uh, this large there group of 15 that, people uh, decided to, to, to stand outside. I guess it was raining at the time. It, right? was, it was raining. Uh, 
the first reported people to see it were uh, two women. One was the priest's housekeeper. He lived about two or three hundred yards away, and his housekeeper went to visit her neighbours and uh, said she noticed something odd outside the gable of the church, but didn't mention it when she went to the neighbours. And then on the uh, return journey, she was accompanied by uh, one of those neighbours whose job it was to close up the church for the night. Mm-hmm. And they uh, saw something, and they called others. And so a cluster of people were called, and some called others. And eventually we had a, probably over a dozen people there. Not all. How, long, how long did people stay around and watch, watch this, uh, this apparition? Again, the accounts vary. Some left before it was uh, over. Uh, well, all left before it was it was concluded. The priest housekeeper went to call him, but he didn't pay much attention to her. And the others, uh, most of the people gathered there went to another house in the village where an old woman was believed to be dying. And one of the people who had come out and seen the apparition was this woman's either daughter or granddaughter. So they all went with her back to her house and left the apparition still in progress. And uh, it sounds like the the details of what happened when the apparition ended to this being publicized are very scarce. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but what is known either through the, the local histories or... Uh, or or any anything else recorded about what happened next? What did the the people who witnessed this apparition? Who did they go to? Who did they tell to the, to uh, wit, witness to this account? The, apparently, uh, they did not tell very many people. One of the witnesses uh, interviewed by the panel later on was a man uh, who wasn't even at the gable, but he said he saw a light at the church from his farm about, about half a mile away. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the, the people at the, um, at the gable uh, of the church, outside the church, uh, gave some accounts to these panel of priests. Whether there were uh, all three priests were, uh, were present is not at all clear. It seems uh, that some of the accounts were given to just one priest or others. And then um, it was a very, very controversial time in the area. Uh, a, a very significant social movement was underway, a challenge to the dominant uh, landlord class. Uh, this was a very poor village, but the, the people who actually were the seers, were, were the witnesses, were not the poorest by any means. They were uh, better off than most in a very poor area. Um, Over the next... uh, We have a newspaper account that priests discouraged publicity for this apparition. But uh, uh, this was in August. In, In January, two different accounts appeared, and both were associated with one priest on the, um, on the Commission of Inquiry. 
Mm-hmm. One was published by as a book by a man who was um, the nephew of one of these priests, and the other uh, account was a series of newspaper articles by a journalist who got all his information from uh, the priest, who was a parish priest in Knock, and also a member of the uh, investigation committee. He chaired the investigating panel, and he was also the employer of the woman who was the priest's housekeeper, you know, the first person, right. as I mentioned. So mm-hmm. he, he is a key figure. Uh, his name is uh, Father Kavanaugh. And uh, from my from my notes, I um, it seems to be that there were two investiga- two separate investigations that were done uh, regarding these apparitions. Um, another one in 1936. There were yes, there were uh, they, the early investigation is not well documented, and it seems that there may have been there were at least two separate parts. One part uh, into the apparition itself and a separate part into miraculous cures that were reported. Okay. And whether or not it was the same commission uh, that was set up to do both of those is not clear. There was some overlap in membership, but whether or not there were uh, separate Inquiries. We don't know very much about the investigation of, of miracle cures. Do we uh, do we know why the second investigation took place? Was it because uh, the details were sort of scattered on the first commission, or because they wanted to focus on the miracles? What what was the actual purpose of uh, the in, motivation well, for this? In the in the ni- in the eighteen eighties, eighteen eighteen, uh, that period of time, uh, not was publicized for, um, greatly publicized in 1880 for six or eight months. And then newspaper coverage virtually disappeared. Mm. Uh, There was local uh, pilgrimage there for a while, but 20 years later it was completely forgotten, and people who grew up in the area, he didn't even hear about the place. Fifty years later, in the 1930s, around 1930, um, other local people started to revive devotion and promote pilgrimage there. And those people were uh, influenced by um, what was happening in uh, the continent. Uh, Some of them were influenced by Fatima. Uh, Some of them were influenced, uh, had a great devotion to Lourdes. And so they set about uh, promoting this, and the first archbishop in the area to visit, uh, visited in in the late 1920s. So for a lot of reasons, I think uh, the clergy, priests, and bishops changed their minds. And Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, started uh, paying more attention, and I think the whole political situation was also changed. So there, was, there wasn't necessarily a constant tradition from when the apparitions were claimed to have occurred no. to that second, uh, that second investigation. It was sort of a, a revival movement of a sort, too. That, that's right. That, that's mm-hmm. right. Uh, 
there wasn't a continuity. The modern shrine and devotion stems from that revival in the 1930s, not from 1879. And you mentioned sort of the social conditions at the time. How did, what role did sort of resurrecting this apparition or resurrecting the devotion or the interest play based on the uh, on the current social situation going on in Ireland in the 1930s? What what well, role did our late of not play? Let me uh, tell you first about the social situation in 1879, 80. Yes. Uh, at that time, um, the just around, particularly in Mayo, in the area around Knock, there was a very significant uh, conflict that's called the land war. It wasn't so much a shooting war but it was massive civil disobedience by tenant farmers forcing landlords to sell to the tenants. It, they got rid of landlords, and there was a lot of... Um, the term boycott comes from that period. Uh, this was a tactic used by tenants, by poor exploited tenants, to put pressure on landlords. Most of the landlords were absentee, but many of them uh, were quite wealthy, and they exploited the local folks. Um, and this had been going on for centuries, but for whatever reason, it, it got up, uh, got started in a big way, got rolling just around that time. And this caught the Catholic Church, especially in a, in, in a sort of a, a dilemma. They supported law and order and they supported property. But they didn't... The local tenant farmers saw them then when they condemned this type of civil disobedience and demonstrations. They saw them as defending landlords. So priests got, uh, were condemning the land movement at initially and the bishop at the place, he was a very long-serving bishop, a hugely popular bishop up to that point, okay. but he, he um, condemned the, the demonstrations. Now, he, at this point, he was very old, and some claims that he was senile or oh. manipulated by priests around him. They didn't believe his condemnation. And others did uh, believe it. Uh, but my reading of the situation is that the priests eventually changed their tactics or changed their... To, they, they called meetings to moderate the demonstrations, but also to condemn landlords, but condemn violence for the threat of violence. And so this is the whole environment within which the knock apparition occurred, and one of the most outspoken yes. one of the most outspoken priests against the land demonstrations was Father Kavanagh, the the very priest who headed the investigation just months before the apparition in June. He was the target of a specific demonstration against him in his own parish. 
thousands mm-hmm. of people, thousands of people came there, and they had a big meeting, and it was voluminous reports in the press. Um, even the police prepared a special confidential report on this demonstration for the government because they, they took it that yeah. seriously. So what you had was this situation where priests were being denounced by the parishioners. And this was a very, very different from the tradition where priests were expected to take the side of these poor people against the landlords. And so that was... Uh, uh, but the priests came in, uh, were caught, you know, might say, wrong-footed. They had uh, underestimated the following these demonstrations would, would generate. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you had this very revered and very well-honored archbishop who was getting very old. He was nearly 90 at this point. He was the longest-serving bishop in all of the Catholic Church at the time. Wow. Um, and he had become a bishop at a very young age. So he, mm-hmm. he had been a bishop for something like 55 years or something like that. Uh-huh. Unprecedented. A long tenure. A very long tenure. And so uh, in the Irish tradition, there were stories. One way of criticizing priests was to... Uh, criticizing anybody in authority, for that matter, was to appeal to some higher authority. Sure. And, you know, when priests behaved inappropriately, they would appeal to uh, the bishops. Or when bishops behaved inappropriately, they would, you know, quote Jesus in the Bible or some other other authority like this. Uh, And there were also stories going back centuries, of uh, the Virgin Mary coming in to criticize bishops or priests when they behaved inappropriately. That was the individual priests, not the priesthood as a whole. Okay. So, so that's, that's where the appeal to a higher authority comes in, and that's where Our Lady of Knock comes in. Mm, that's that's uh, my best understanding of what the local people would have understood initially. By nineteen, by the nineteen thirties, things had changed dramatically. Um, Ireland was no longer part of Britain, of the United Kingdom. The landlords had essentially been uh, bought out, in a sense that landlords no longer controlled the land. There were individual landlords. But most of the land, most of the farmers were no longer tenants, but they were working, they were owners of the farms that they owned. Uh, They were paying on mortgages, but basically under the the demonstrations against the landlords, the government had put up money to buy out the landlords and then put the tenants in the position of owners with mortgages. And Ireland also had become independent of the Republic. And so uh, the land war, the conflict between landlords, 
that was a thing of the past. And um, Ireland had a, a great devotion to uh, Catholicism, especially, but also Mary. And the the people who revived devotion in Knock, I said they were local people. Um, it's true that they were local people, but they hadn't grown up there. Um, the key people were um, a couple, a married couple, uh, William and Judy Coyne. They were a couple. She was from Mayo, but he was a judge from someplace else in the country who's got transferred to serve as a judge in that area. And these were the people who were the key uh, folks in organizing uh, collecting evidence from local people and uh, promoting uh, pilgrimage and interesting uh, the the church authorities in further investigation and yeah. coins uh, and along with a, a, a sympathetic bishop, to, you know were worked together with the second commission of inquiry into the nineteen in the nineteen thirties comes out of their work. Absolutely. And today, uh for those just joining the program, we are talking with Dr. Eugene Hines. He's a professor of sociology at Kettering University and he's the author of the book Knock the Virgin Mary's Apparition in Nineteenth Century Ireland. And Dr. Hines, uh, tell us a little bit, what inspired you to write this book? Where, where, what was your level of interest, and what drew you to uh, looking at some of the sociological aspects of the great apparition? Well, at Knock? I, grew, I grew up on a farm uh, 50 miles from Knock. Uh, I grew up in an area, in a community, in a family that was, you know, Catholic. Our Lady of Knock, Knock Devotion was just assumed, uh, accepted, and practiced. I went as a pilgrim uh, many times to knock uh, with uh, my family when I was young. Uh, my folks would hire one of the local men who had a car, which was not very many, and we'd drive there on a Sunday. Uh, they provided that service for many locals, for many neighbors on many a uh, summer Sunday. Um, you had a you had a great personal interest in Knock, having gone there many times. Uh, as a I youth. had gone there, yes. Um, but then I came to the U.S. to uh, go to uh, graduate school, study sociology, and I was interested not just in Knock, but I was learning to see as an outsider what every aspect of my the society I knew as an insider. I knew. Not only yeah. religion and not, but every aspect of you know life and growing up in a farm and so on and so forth. And so I was always paid attention to what was other people were writing in other societies, other places, and other, so on and so forth. And um, then I was provoked by a historian who wrote an account of Catholicism in Ireland that I thought was a little wrong-headed. Uh, he talked about um, how 
the Roman authorities mobilised bishops and priests to, you might say, make the Irish into practising Catholics. And I thought they had always been practising, uh, but they didn't seem to uh, pay much attention to how things looked from from the pews, from the grassroots, so to speak. And so I had a, a, a sort of a, a relationship with this historian that was he, with his work. I didn't, I didn't have much to do with him personally, but uh, I disagreed with him. And so I, I said about you know documenting what I thought was uh, inaccurate or incomplete in his account. And the more I did that, the more I realized I had to try to explain what happened at Knock, because if I couldn't do that, then my understanding wasn't very good either. Mm-hmm. And so that was the background. And then, uh, you know, uh, I uh, I thought about this for decades. It wasn't my central concern. I was busy with other projects and so on. Mm-hmm. But um, eventually, many different pieces of evidence started fitting together in in a way that made sense to me. And so I buckled down and wrote the book. That's great. And and for for people who are looking to pick up your book, Knock the Virgin Mary's Apparition in Nineteenth Century Ireland, what will they what will they encounter in your book? How is the book organized and what do you take the reader through when they when they read through your book? Um I go back to uh, Knock, the local area in Mayo, for about 50 years before the apparition. Uh, I was lucky to find uh, an account written by a local man who was actually living in England at the time of the apparition, but read about the apparition and brought his memories of growing up there. That was a fantastic account. And he explains how things looked from inside. From uh, When people uh, told stories, they weren't always intending them to be taken literally and so on. I, I described the social situation. I described the history. I described, described the culture. I described how they practiced religion. I described... Um, how they told stories and how uh, priests were regarded and sometimes disregarded. And I place all of this uh, in the background. And then I um, follow up with an account of the life and reputation of that archbishop I mentioned, who was a key figure. Uh, And I uh, then... uh, describe the local scene just before the apparition, just as much as we can. And I was able to get everything, you know, newspaper and um, police reports for the months and weeks just before and after the apparition. And there was a lot of material because there were reporters there on this ongoing demonstration. Mm -hmm. Some of them wrote a little bit about the uh, apparitions, but most of them were just focusing on the demonstrations. Um, and in the last chapter or two of the book, I 
describe how the investigation was carried out as best we can figure that out and how especially the story was publicized. Uh, in fact, two different stories were publicized because the two versions that came out from two different priests on the, um, on the uh, commission are not the same story. Uh, some of it is sort of stylistic differences. And each of the priests seems to have their own favorite witnesses that one they favored or didn't favor. Uh, Father Kavanagh seems to pay more attention to his own employee, his own housekeeper. Uh, and uh, the other priest was a, was a Father Burke. He seemed to have uh, placed greatest confidence in the testimony of a 13 13- of a young boy who was mm-hmm. anywhere from 11 to 13 age. Because the, the witnesses were of a whole range, age of ranges, correct? It wasn't uh, they, just they, adults, they, they were children. Yeah, there were a whole range of ages. Interesting, there was a, a big cluster of them. About nine of them were all related in some way, an extended rela- set of relationships. Mm-hmm. There was uh, three siblings all in their late teens or 20s, and their widowed mother, and their um, niece who lived with them. Uh, and then you had uh, a cousin of those uh, siblings, and his, he was a, a male, uh, and we don't know whether he was married or not, but he was had living with him his nephew, who was only five or six, uh, and also uh, another neighbor who had the same name and is very likely a relative. And in addition, there was another cousin visiting and working mm-hmm. with one of these folks. So these are all either, they're all called Byrne or their mothers were Byrne. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so th- this whole cluster of um, relatives in the center, and they're the, by far the most important witness group. The others uh, either were, they were sort of loners in the sense that they didn't have relatives in the area. Um, one was a priest housekeeper. Uh, another was somebody uh, that nobody could, Identify later on. He was just called a man of the roads. He was. Uh, he might have been uh, a tramp or a, or or a, a beggar, but mm-hmm. nobody could know much about him. And um, then there was a woman who um, was known, uh, but uh, she didn't, wasn't related to the others. Uh, she was the daughter of, uh, and maybe a granddaughter of an old woman in another house. That's the, I said there was another old woman thought to be dying in another house nearby. That's where all the people left the church gable to go to. And so, um, what? So we have male and female, um, and they range in age from 
five or six, and the oldest woman uh, spoke only Irish, and she was reported to be in her mid-70s. One report said 77. Um, and would you say the, the test, you, you, you mentioned in the testimony of the witnesses that they uh, they varied in, in, in what what um, people they saw appearing. They saw the Virgin Mary, but they, they questioned, there was a question of did they see all see St. Joseph and see um, St. John, and if they saw the Lamb, um, in their descri- in their description of sort of this illuminated in these illuminated figures, was that consistent across the board, or or what? What, what if you had to analyze their testimony? What would you? What uh, would you I would say uh, practically everybody uh, who's reported that we had testimony we have says they saw three figures, mm-hmm. and they had no trouble identifying two of them: the Virgin Mary and Saint Joseph. Mm-hmm. The third figure, practically everybody identified it initially as a bishop. Nothing mm-hmm. more precise than that, a bishop. And they said it was a bishop because it had a mitre, wore a mitre. I see. Uh, and then somehow that figure got to be identified as St. John the Evangelist. Mm-hmm. How that came to be is very puzzling, to, to say, say the least. Uh, the figures were life-size, but they didn't move and they didn't speak. And they didn't move at all in the course of a couple of hours while these things while mm-hmm. people were present. That's what the testimony says. At the same time, um, some less than probably about half of the witnesses uh, didn't mention what others did in terms of an altar to the mm. side of the, this group of, of persons or personages, uh, and on the altar, a lamb and a cross. Um, did, any, uh, did any of the witnesses attempt to make physical contact with the Yes. Yes. Um, The old woman testified that she approached the gable. Now, they were looking at this mainly from a a little way away from the church gable. They had to get over some type of a a fence, a wall, to get up close. Uh, And the old woman said she tried to touch the figures. There was nothing there. Uh, many critics later on claimed the whole thing was a hoax created by a projection of a of a a, a slide from a magic lantern. Mm-hmm. So you'd have yeah. a projection like this, and that's what she didn't realize this. I I think that's a little ludicrous, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I've heard I've heard that that theory as well. Yeah. Um, but um, but thank thank you so much, uh, Dr. Eugene, uh, for for going through all these details. I think we have a lot of uh, people from with Irish heritage who are listening today, and uh, many people are familiar with the basics of the story of Our Lady of Knock. But it was really great to hear all the behind the scenes, especially the social considerations of it. And for those people who would be interested in getting your book, can you tell people where they can obtain Knock the Virgin Mary's Apparition in the 19th Century? 
Uh, well, my publisher is in Ireland, uh, Knock Univers- uh, sorry, uh, Cork University Press. But if you go on Amazon, I think it's there, and uh, Cork University Press has an American uh, distributor. Unfortunately, I can't give you their, uh, their website right now because I don't have it in my head. But That's okay, but Amazon.com would be a place where people to, could get it who were interested. Well, I, I think so. It was there in yeah. the past, and, you know, it's, it's still, uh, this came out in um, paperback a couple of years ago, and oh. so um, it should be available. Wonderful. Well, and thank it, you so much, uh, Dr. Hines, for being with us today. We appreciate all your insights, and uh, people will be interested in picking up the book and, and reading more about it. So. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for asking. And that was Dr. Eugene Hines, the professor of sociology at Kettering University and author of the book, Knock, The Virgin Mary's Apparition in 19th Century Ireland. And we have just a little bit of time left on the show, but uh, joining us now is Bernadette Gavins, the tour director of, Shri- of the Shrine of Our Lady of Knock in East Durham, New York. Welcome to the show today, Bernadette. Yes, thank you for having us. Well, so we, we we heard a little bit about the history of uh, Our Lady of Knock in Ireland, and uh, there's a shrine there in East Durham, New York, and I hear that you give tours of that shrine. Can you give us a little bit of the brief history and background of, of the shrine there and what people will see when they go to visit? Sure. Um, the shrine opened up in um, 1989, um, and, of course, on August 21st, 1989, the feast day of Our Lady of Knock. Um, and, uh, you know, at the Lady of Knock Shrine, East Durham is extremely special, primarily because um, we are located in the Irish Catskill. So besides um, the shrine itself and for the shrine, it's a very um, area that's, you know, primarily settled by Irish and Irish Americans. Um, so the, sh- the shrine, uh, everything in the shrine is imported from Ireland. Um, there's stained glass windows, and the apparition itself is really amazing. Um, there's an artistic impression there of the gable wall and Our Lady and St. John and St. Joseph at each side. Um, there's the Lamb of God um, above the tabernacle, and it really is just a beautiful sight to see. Um, I guess it's kind of uh, just a quick synopsis. Um, everything in there, as I said, has been sent and shipped over from Ireland, um, primarily from County Donegal. Ireland, and a man by the name of Jerry Lafferty was the designer of Our Lady of Knox Shrine in East Durham. Okay. And I imagine with the uh, feast day right around the corner, you'll be having some celebrations there at the shrine. Can you tell the audience yes. what uh, what you'll be doing to celebrate? Yeah. Every Our Lady of Knox Day, uh, every year, um, there's a special mass. Um, this year, it's led by our pastor, Father Flannery, um, and it's at 11 a.m., um, like I said, it's at Route 145 in East Durham, New York. Um, if you Google it or not quest it, you'll get the directions. But, yeah, so there'll be a special Mass, and then um, usually there's volunteers and there's a tent set up outside the Mass um, afterwards with coffee and tea and Irish bread. Um, and we, um, I'm an innkeeper on this side as well, and we always have a motor coach that comes up every year. Um, the Mayo Society of New York always comes up every year for that day. So it's a big celebration, and um, I do a lot of tours a lot during St. Patrick's Day during that month because sure. of Irish, you know, associated to that. So mm-hmm. a lot of celebrations. And 
Great. That's wonderful. And uh, for people who are interested in finding out more or visiting the shrine, do you have a phone number that they might call? Um, I wish I did. I'm so sorry. I'm on the road right now. But I know if you Google Sacred Heart Church in Cairo, New York, um, you'll get our parish phone number. Our Lady of Knox Shrine is actually considered a mission church. So you just want to Google um, Sacred Heart Par- um, Parish in um, Cairo, New York, and you will get the phone number. Wonderful. Well, I uh, want to wish you the best for the Feast of uh, Our Lady of Knock coming yeah. up, and I hope uh, all the su- success with your shrine. So thank you for joining us on thank today's you. show. Thank you. Yep, thank you for having us. God bless. God bless. And that was Bernadette Gavins, uh, the Director of Tours at the Shrine of Our Lady of Knock in East Durham, New York. And as she mentioned, you can Google that to find out more if you would want to visit that shrine to celebrate the feast day. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Uh, we'd like to thank Dr. Eugene Hines, author of Knock, the Virgin Mary's Apparition in 19th Century Ireland, and Bernadette Gavins for joining us on today's show. And be sure to visit MiracleHunter.com as your resource for miracles and keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.